safetyfm.com with Jay Allen. Changing safety cultures one broadcast and one podcast at a time. Welcome to Safety FM where we talk about safety that's truly inspired by you. Hello and welcome to Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast has been brought to you by Safety Focus Moment. There are consultants that want to help you get to the safety culture that you've been looking for. For more information, go to safetyfocusmoment.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. Hopefully you've been having a fantastic week so far. I feel like it's been such a long time since we've had a conversation, but it really hasn't been that long. It's just been a while since I've sat in front of the microphone and really sat down and recorded a podcast. I've been doing that lovely traveling thing, helping out different organizations. So today is going to be one of the very interesting podcasts and broadcasts. And I know that people say, well, you say that a lot, Jay, that this one's going to be interesting. Well, today on the podcast, today I have Paul Comfort from the Transit Unplugged podcast. Now, I've had several requests of people saying, hey, that we needed to sit down and have Paul on the podcast and the broadcast. The interesting part was I didn't really know much about Paul before we actually started the interview. And there is a lot more to Paul than him just being a podcaster. Normally, I would probably give you a breakdown of what exactly we discovered. But what I want you to do is listen to what Paul had to say. Paul comes from the transit industry. And he has a lot of experience inside of this industry. And he has a lot of points of views of what he thinks about the transit industry and what he thinks about safety revolving the transit industry. And he talks about the different things that he has done throughout his career to achieve success within the transit industry. Enjoy the interview with Paul Comfort here on Safety FM. Hello, and I have Paul Comfort from Transit Unplugged on the line. How are you doing today? Doing great, Jay. Well, Paul, I appreciate you coming on. I, I Like I told you while we were talking here a little bit before, I've had several of my listeners actually contact me telling me, the, telling me that I have to get you on. So I appreciate you actually coming on today. And I have to say, I have to say I've listened to your podcast, took a listen to, to a few of the episodes. How did you decide to start doing podcasting and talking about transportation? Well, thanks, Jay. And it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest. Um, So let's see. Uh, You know, I've had a long interest in um, media and my three kind of passions. You know, everybody has their hobbies and things they're interested in. Mine are um, media, music and politics, government. Those are the three things that through my life I've always been interested in. And my career has interwoven those topics uh, and those um, uh, working in those areas over the last 30 years. So uh, I had, as I mentioned to you before, I did radio part-time for 16 years locally in Chestertown, Maryland. I had a show on WCTR uh, AM 1530 there called Comfort's Corner, where I interviewed local, you know, people, county commissioners and stuff like that. And and then turned it to like a news show. I, I was news director at University of Maryland radio station, NBC when I was there. Uh, and then um, when I was at the MTA, when I was CEO of MTA in Baltimore, 
we actually started, I think, the nation's first FM radio station run by a transit system. Uh, and it was 93.5 WTTV. And I had a great guy there, Mark Jones, who had this vision and, and even had gotten the low-power FM license, but nobody had ever kind of given him a little money and the, and the authorization to do it. So we did it and did smooth jazz all day long. And then four times an hour, we did traffic and transit updates. And we did lots of programming on there. And it, it actually is one of the top listened to stations now in the Baltimore area. Uh, 93.5, you can get it, you know, on uh, the, the, you know, tune in radio app and all that stuff. too. It's really, it's, it's a great, great station. So about a year ago, when I came to work for Trapeze, long way to answer the question, uh, they asked me, hey, would you be interested in doing a podcast? And I was like, sure, that's right up my alley, man. I mean, you know, I love broadcasting and all that. And so they said, what would you want to do? And I said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to interview transit CEOs. Nobody does that. That's a niche. And you know, I was—I had just finished being a transit CEO, and I was head of the MTA in Baltimore. And I had a lot of friends in the business, and you know, people are always wanting to know kind of what the future holds for public transit. And I said, why not go to the top and talk to the top guys and gals that are that are running North America's transit systems? So that's what we've been doing. And uh, so it's called Transit Unplugged. And like yours, you know, it's available on its own platform, transitunplugged.com, but it's also on iTunes, Google Play, everywhere you can basically, you know, get um, get podcasts. Uh, and we come out twice a month, usually on the 15th and 30th. It's a 30-minute format. And basically, I just interview CEOs like... Um, this will probably air in the future, but you know, in, in next week in, in real life time, I'll be in Nashville for APTA, the American Public Transit Association's annual conference. And so while I'm there, I've set up four interviews. I'm interviewing the CEO of Las Vegas. I'm interviewing the CEO of Houston, uh, this guy who's going to win the award for the top transit manager of the year this year, and you know, the head of MV Transportation. So I just talk to them about their careers, uh, what they're working on now, and what they think the future of transit is. And a lot of times we talk about safety. Uh, you know, because that's a key aspect in public transit. No, I agree. I agree with you 100 percent on that. It's a very key portion to public transit. Now, let me kind of ba- back up a little bit with some of the answers that you gave. Now, when you referenced that you actually started the radio station, how were you able to get that approved? Because I always I always find it interesting on when you start talking about, well, of course, now podcasting, when you talk about especially radio station, low powered radio station back in the day. A lot of people were like, I know that when I was in the industry, they were very hesitant about starting, especially the low ones, especially when I was still in school. How were, how did you manage to get that started? Yeah, so it's a great story. I mean, I'll just keep it brief, though. So this guy, Mark Jones, who had been there for a while at the MTA and like a lot of transit systems across America, major ones, they've got a couple people in that work in media. And these uh, there was um, two guys there, basically, that were doing this full time. And they would call in every morning and every afternoon to like 20 radio and TV stations and give updates on transit. You know, we had a subway system, light rail, public bus, commuter bus, and commuter train service, as well as the paratransit, six services. So they would call in and say, you know, the uh, you know the red line is doing this, the blue line is doing that, you know, it's five minutes late here, and there's a deviation on, you know, Light Street because of a water main break or whatever. And so they would give these updates. But this guy, Mark Jones, had an awesome voice, has an amazing voice, one of these deep late night FM DJ voices, you know, he had this passion, like I said, and a vision to start a radio station. So he had worked with the attorneys at, um, at the MTA over the last couple of years and gone through the painstaking process of applying to the FCC uh, as a, you know, as a public entity uh, to get a low power FM license. And, and it would be, it would be, you know, traffic and transit information um, as well as jazz music. And so he had gone through and actually gotten the license but had never been able to do anything with it. And so when I got there, he told me about it and my, you know, I just lit up because my passion is radio and TV and all that. And so 
We all, you know, I gave him a hundred thousand dollars from the budget, which was more than he needed. He bought some extra equipment. We put the tower way up on, I think it was on WBAL TV's tower up on Television Hill, way up top. Uh, and so even though it was a low power FM station, it was 600 feet in the air up on Television Hill. And so we got coverage over the entire Baltimore City region, including some of the suburbs. So we had, you know, over a million potential listeners of our station just by terrestrial radio, not even counting the fact that we put it on our website. You know, we put it on social media and we have it on, you know, other uh, apps that you can get radio stations on. So that's how we got it going. And, and uh, we, I hired an extra DJ, a gal from uh, Mix 106.5 in Baltimore. She became available. I hired her full time. She's a major market personality. She helped us do all kinds of extra, you know, out in the field interviews and set up all kinds of shows. And so I was able to get an extra person in the budget for it. And so we had basically three full time people. And then we could, and we also could run more of our transit and traffic updates during the middle of the day and not just during peak times as well. And it, it was a big hit. We won a bunch of awards for it and a lot of fun is still going on now. Well, that's awesome. I mean, there's a really good original idea because a lot of people, I mean, I wouldn't associate the two things as going, hey, let's get to have a radio station that gives us updates about what's going on with public transportation. That is a great idea. I'm glad that that really worked out. And I, I'll tell you, it sounds definitely that you're bitten by the radio bug or the broadcasting bug, as, as I like to say, because once you get bitten by it, it's something that's ongoing and it seems like it never goes away. That's right. Yeah. When I was uh, part of my career, I I went into regular county government and became like the CEO of two county governments in Maryland. And in both of them, I built up our PEG channel, our TV channel. So we had a public educational government television channel as well. And we had money in the budget that people were paying for their cable franchise fees, 5%, just like in Charles County, Maryland, where we, where we kind of built up the station almost from scratch. Uh, and the same kind of thing. We had a million dollars in this fund that was there to do something with and nobody ever done it. And so uh, same kind of thing. So I, I love broadcasting and really podcasting is really the next phase of it. It's it's uh, radio kind of um, on demand. I, I agree. And I think it's just one of those things that it's a, one of those formats that it's when the person's available, when they want to listen to it. And it's just you click and you go. And then if it's a subject matter that you're interested in, you can pick up on those genres and just really jump around. I think it's such a great format that's available to out to the audience nowadays that and it's funny because it was there was a gentleman that used to be on mtv by the name of adam curry and i'm no, and i know that i'm really giving too much detail here but he was the, one of the originators of talking about podcasting and i remember hearing back about this back in 1996 and i think it's amazing on how when you look at it now how it's really picking up but it was something that was out and available all the way back then so when you go through your when you go through your particular podcast and you go to these high level CEOs and you say, hey, I want to sit down and have an interview with you about your system and how it works. What are some of the pushback that you get at the very beginning or are they pretty open to what you have to say? Well, uh, I'm not I don't do adversarial interviews. And so uh, most of them were thrilled to have, to have a, a kind of a venue um, where it really is unplugged, meaning I don't have an agenda coming in. I'm not trying to, you know ask you a softball question so that I can get to the hardball question. All right. So tell us what really happened in that union strike last week. You know, <laughs> I just don't go there. That's not having been a CEO. I, I know that they have enough of the other media doing that to them. And they're, you know, like my buddy, Paul Wiedefeld, who's CEO of Washington Metro told me when I interviewed him, I actually did two shows with him uh, all in one take um, because there's so much to talk about, but you know, he's like, Paul, I'm, I'm on the front page of the newspaper, you know, three times a week. And, we lead the news here. They've actually got reporters just dedicated to, you know, uncovering problems there, et cetera. So they, they have enough of that scrutiny. My, what I'm there to do is to give them a chance unplugged to tell their own story. 
you know, people want to know about their career and about uh, what's their current, you know, what's their latest and greatest thing they're working on. And then what do they think of the role of the autonomous shuttles and what's happening with mobility as a service? What are ways in which they're working to expand the service, to add a new line or, you know, improve their safety program? And so I didn't get any pushback. You know, I'm, I'm probably friends with 60 or 70 of the CEOs, the major CEOs, just kind of personally through my 30 years in the business. So I started with people I know. And as it's gotten popular, I mean, you know, we, we won an award uh, about a month ago from the Content Management Association. We were one of the top finalists for uh, business podcasts of the year. So as we start getting success and people are listening now in the industry, um, they're asking me now. So this, like when I'm going down to this conference, I told you about, uh, you know, I'm doing four interviews and two of them were people asking me, hey, would you mind uh, doing an interview? So, so they're coming my way now, which is great, which I'm happy to do. And there's plenty of CEOs in North America. And now we even spread out. I went to Switzerland a couple months ago to visit uh, what my company, Trapeze, is doing there in a city called Neuhausen, Switzerland, outside of Zurich, where they're running the first autonomous shuttle in regular route, fixed route public transportation. It's not like a pilot or just, you know, a limited thing. It's mixed right in with their system. Uh, and so I went over there and did a podcast about that. That'll be coming out soon. Uh, and now I've been picked up by Axios News Service as kind of their um, expert on autonomous shuttles and on smart cities. And I'm writing for them actually just today I had my fourth article published on Axios. So uh, starting to, you know, take the message of uh, the mobility future, what's happening. There's so many cool things happening in mobility and in safety uh, for mobility that um, it's, it's probably, you know, the transit world is innovating at a, at a rate faster than almost any other area other than medicine. I think there's so many cool new things happening from Hyperloop, you know, to uh, to just everything you could think of. Mobility is a service, you know. The, the latest thing in most cities are these little, um, you know, scooters, uh, Lime scooters, et cetera, and different companies that purchase them in cities. And then that was, bikes was before that. And so this, this public mobility transit space is really where it's happening right now. So I'm excited to be right in the mix. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the scooter thing, because I actually was in California a couple of weeks ago, and and it was one of the first times that I had seen one of those bird scooters. And then after doing some research, I realized that it was Uber was behind it. And I was like, hmm, this is pretty interesting on how it works. And I ended up taking taking a ride from Santa Monica all the way down to Venice Beach. And I was amazed at number one, how quick it was able to go and that the battery life. So that impressed me. But let me go back to something that you said a little bit before. You're saying that you're seeing a lot of difference in the mobility industry. And speaking to the different CEOs, what do you feel is going to be the next big thing that comes out of the industry? So it's it's clearly autonomous buses. So these are, you know, um, autonomous buses are buses without a, a driver. You know, it's, it's driving autonomously. I just was in Las Vegas two weeks ago uh, with MJ Maynard, the deputy CEO there, uh, and we'll be interviewing her boss at the show, the CEO. They are the first one in America and the biggest uh, pilot in America. So they kind of put on a little deal for me and took me out on it. The second time I've been there to look at their uh, what they're doing. And they've had uh, like 35,000 passengers ride it over the last year. Uh, so autonomous buses, they're small buses. There's only a few manufacturers. Two of them are French right now. And a couple companies are coming to America, I think, to build them. But transit systems across America are trying them. I've got a friend who's CEO in a Midwestern city who wants to try it in the next couple months. We sent some people down there to meet with him. Uh, my buddy in Austin, Texas, the CEO down there, Randy Clark, is, is doing a pilot program there. So it, it, it's not going to necessarily replace the big buses, 
But what it will do is it will allow us to provide transit in spaces where there's maybe not enough passengers right now to justify a 40-foot bus. But, you know, there's people that definitely need a ride somewhere. And as long as it's not a real long ride, because these buses don't have like the memory capacity for like a 30-mile route yet, uh, and they don't have the AI installed in it like Google Waymo and some of the other cars have yet, but it's coming in the next couple of years, I think. So I think that's the next big thing. The next big thing is where does autonomous, it's good first and last mile solution is what we call it in our business, meaning, so, you know, you, you have to get in your, so here's a perfect example in Baltimore. If you want to ride the Mark train, the Maryland area regional commuter train, from Baltimore down to DC every day, which 30,000 people do. All the all the trains stop in DC. You gotta get in your car and drive to the train station and then get on the train and ride down. Then you come back, get back in your car. So that first mile getting from your house to the train station and the last mile coming home, wouldn't it be awesome if you could get there and there is a little shuttle bus there that seats maybe 12 people and picks you and a few other people up and there's no there doesn't have to be a driver in it. It knows where to go. It, it's all pre-programmed, it takes you around, now, right now, they all have somebody in them. They don't let them run without an attendant. And the attendant is there to explain everything to people and to kind of be a, um, you know, an onboard host. And they can take control of the vehicle if they ever needed to. But normally they don't. Um, I was with a guy two weeks ago that the first guy in America with a G endorsement on his license, like drivers get P endorsements for passenger endorsements for buses. And it's for autonomous buses. And uh, so he said, all I do is get in and push a destination and push go. And that's all he has to do most of the time. So that's big. Another big thing happening is called mobility as a service. So that involves what you just talked about. That involves all the mobility solutions in a city being pulled together into one app on your phone. And, and you can do, you know, program your trip. So it would include Uber, Lyft, the bus, the train, uh, maybe a rent-a-bike or, or even a scooter, all on one app. And you say, okay, and you push a button. You say, here's where I am, here's where I want to go. And I want to do it for the cheapest or I want to do it for the fastest or, I want, you know, you figure out, you put in what your priorities are and they'll pre-program your trip for you. And it'll, the Dallas was doing this. My buddy's down there, great guys in Dallas. Uh, they were working on an app, which would do pull together 10 different solutions. And some of them include taxis too. Uh, and it programs the trip for you. Okay. So call a lift vehicle. That'll come. We'll send a lift to your house. It'll take you out to the train station. That'll take you into the city. And then, uh, you know, get on a rent-a-bike uh, and it'll take you the last mile into your office. So that's the, that'll be $14 or that'll be $3 or whatever. And in places like Helsinki, Finland, which really started this off, they're doing it for a monthly subscription fee. So you can get a gold plan or a silver plan. It's okay. The gold plan might include 10 Uber trips. The silver plan might include five in a month. So I think that's what's happening. What it will allow people to do is, so the millennials, the people who were born, you know, who are like my kids' age, uh, they are moving back into cities and they're getting married or uh, living with roommates and they don't have to have, everybody in the house doesn't have to have a car when you do that. You can maybe have one car and then use the mobility as a service for the rest of what you need. And uh, it saves, you know, you don't have a car, man. That saves you like eight to $10,000 a year. Uh, and so if you can get your mobility as a service pass for $500 a month, that's uh, $6,000 versus ten and no hassle and you don't need that extra parking space that you have to pay for if you're living in a condo or whatever. So this is what's happening. These are two of the two newest, coolest things that are happening in the transit world. And of course, being on a safety program, I have to ask you the question, what are they looking at from a safety perspective, especially with the autonomous vehicles? I know that you said that, you, that they have essentially somebody who's there that can manage the vehicle if it need be, but what else are they looking at, especially, are you familiar with anything with the programming or the back end side of it on how they're programming some of these vehicles? 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's um, so the manufacturers do most of the programming, and then it's tied into uh, a dispatch system. So when I was in Switzerland, uh, in Zurich, where I was at, and also in Newhausen, which is part of a state call, or they call it a canton over there, Schulhausen, um, uh, it's running. They're running our software, my company's software, Trapeze Software, as the CAD ADL software, the Computer Aided Dispatch slash Automated Vehicle Location, um, and so. They, uh, it's, it's tracking where the vehicle's at. They've got cameras in the vehicle and outside the vehicle. So if there wasn't a driver in there, they could still see what's happening in the vehicle live, real time in dispatch. Uh, it's integrated into the run pick or into where, where the vehicles are being pulled out together. It's actually even integrated into like, you know, um, layover. So the, the bus will come and you can get off and then another bus comes right behind it and you get on the other bus so you can transfer to get to another, another location. Um, and, and soon it'll be going around what they call the Rhine Falls, which is, it's, that's where Newhausen is. Rhine Falls are the biggest waterfalls by volume in Europe. And that's the town that, that this autonomous shuttle is in. And they're going to run one right along the trail along the, along the, um, the path of the Rhine Falls. So the, the back end software and the programming of the software right now is being done by the vehicle manufacturer. Uh, Navia is the one that we're using there. And they'll come in, they analyze the route and they program it in. And then they tie their program soft into a back office software, which is running the transit system. And, you know, Trapeze has uh, not to toot our own horn, but we have one of the you know biggest and most successful and longest serving major softwares for that kind of stuff in the world. We're, we're everywhere um, in, in North America. Seventy five. There's one hundred and ninety major transit systems and 75% of them have at least one of our products there. So uh, we do, you know, fare boxes and computers in the buses. We do, in addition to tons of software, asset management, all that stuff too. So it's cool to work for them. It's a great company. They're a Canadian company. Uh, and my role with them, just as an FYI, is I'm kind of like an industry ambassador. So I'm helping to make sure that um, I don't necessarily get involved in direct sales or anything, but my job is to you know, be out there and be an ambassador for other CEOs if they have questions or concerns, or, and just to be involved on the cutting edge of what's happening in transit. Uh, and, and to circle back to your topic, uh, safety is one of the key aspects that our software and most software systems are focused on. And these, uh, all of the latest and greatest innovations, including obviously autonomous vehicles, have to be safe and i've got i've pulled together over the years i mean i've won tons of awards in safety the mta in baltimore when i was there in 2016 we won the gold award uh, as one of the uh, safest transit systems in america we also for both years i was there had the lowest amount of part one crimes out of any of the major top 12 transit systems in america that's the murder rape you know all that stuff we didn't have any murders any rapes or any shootings on any of our service in baltimore for the whole two years i was there uh, and so safety is a big, important part of, you know, driver, I mean, uh, yeah, driver, but also passenger, uh, passengers being comfortable on public transit. They have to feel it's safe from a personal safety perspective, as well as the vehicle is being inspected correctly and, you know, not going to break down on them or have problems and that kind of stuff. So safety is key in order to get passengers to ride. Last thing I'll mention in this is that uh, across America and really across North America, unfortunately, Ridership on public transit is generally down over the last five years. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of people say the big part, the biggest part of it is the choice riders, people that choose whether to ride or not, are choosing to take, you know, what they, these other companies like Uber and Lyft and other options. Plus, a lot of people are able to telecommute now more than they used to be able to. And, 
and gas prices have gone down and so people can drive more. They were four dollars, remember, a while ago and now they're like two fifty across most of the country or two eighty. So there's all these reasons. But to me, another big reason is we have to make sure transit is doing what people want. Let's listen to what the passengers are saying. One of the key things they're saying is I have to be I have to feel safe when I'm on the transit system. Absolutely. And not to recap one of the episodes that you have done, but actually the episodes that you did with Brad Miller out of PSTA. I was impressed on some of the technology pieces that he's brought into his particular organization. And what I'm talking about is in regards of actually him tying in Uber and being able to bring from a curb service, curb to curb, and being able to tie it into the transit system. And then some of the, the credits that they give some of the passengers. I was really impressed as listening to that conversation that you had with him. Now, I have a strange question. When I, Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, it's... I, I was amazed that he was able to get to get it pushed through. But then I, ha I have to tell you, going back to some of the stuff that you were saying before, when it comes to the autonomous vehicles, I know that fare evasion some, is an issue in the bus industry. How is that managed? I know that you have the the one person and you have the 12, and you know, the 12 potential seats inside of the vehicle. But is, do you still have that potential issue inside of the autonomous vehicles? Great question. Right now, so far, no. And you know why? Because they're giving it away everywhere they're running it, it's it's being run for free. Okay, good and reason. <laughs> so uh, there's no, there, yeah, there's no problem. Now, I mean, just as a side note on fare evasion, so the average across America, so there's there's like 30 or now maybe 35 light rail systems across America. These are the ones that you know have the pantograph on top, and uh, it's powered by electricity over top of the vehicle. Light rail systems like they have in downtown Baltimore City. Uh, they're all, every single one of them is run on the honor system. So people have to get a card. There's nobody collecting the fares when you get on. There's no machines like a fare box that you pay. But the average, so, and then they have police officers or, um, or monitors come through in brown uniforms and they'll say, you know, let me see, you got a ticket every so often and they monitor it. And in most places, it's not more than four or 5%, the fare of Asian. People that ride that are, they realize, you know, that they need to pay the fare for it. But remember, in public transit, Most public transit systems are only collecting less than 20% of the cost to run the system through fares. So it's really heavily subsidized. Some of them are doing a lot better. I mean, there's a few of them that have figured out ways to do better. My buddy in Rochester, New York, has got his way up there near 45%, I think, because he's charging businesses, like 75 businesses and colleges where he's run routes out right to where they're at, where they help subsidize it directly, which I think is an awesome way to do it. Um, But most of them, the, the, the subsidies are down there. But quick, quick flip back to using public, using um, like Lyft and Uber and stuff in public transit. That's a third big trend. Just FYI, you asked about trends. So it's autonomous vehicle, mobility as a service, and then tying things in. We actually even developed a software program, my company, uh, that will, that called Trip Broker uh, or something like where you can analyze where, Uh, when somebody calls in for a trip, like on a paratransit service, people with disabilities, they can say to them, okay, well, every Lyft driver in the city now, I can see where they're at. And I can send this driver over there for $4 for you, which would be cheaper than the six it would be if we sent the other van that we run. And so by getting this plug-in on our software system, our past software system, which is something that runs paratransit systems, people are doing that now across the country too. I think Gainesville is one that's working on it. Uh, and so it, it kind of pulls in these Lyft vehicles to be part of your fleet almost. You know, They're like uh, non-dedicated vehicles in your fleet. So that's another big uh, trend that people are looking at. How can I cut the cost of paratransit services? Uh, and one of the ways is to use taxis or, or to use uh, some of these other services such as Lyft. 
And we're speaking to Paul Comfort from Transit Unplugged. Now, Paul, I have one more quick question for you, if you don't mind. There was an article you put out a while back about called The Seven Steps of Safety. Could you give us a recap on what that exactly is? Sure. And, um, uh, you know, I'm on LinkedIn. If people want to see the article, I've got it posted there. I forget which magazine put this out. Uh, It was in maybe Bus Ride magazine. Um, But so... You know, I'm an inductive thinker. I like pulling things together. My wife is deductive. She likes breaking things apart. So that's why we, one of the reasons why we make a great couple. Uh, and so as I pulled together my thoughts about, you know, what have I learned in safety? Having, you know, run small systems, medium systems, large systems, public sector and private sector contractors. I came up with seven steps that I think are integral and one or two of them that almost everybody skips in order to have a great public transit system. We had to, resu- had to have a safe system and I've shown the results. I mean, we, we have, I've got, you know, our paratransit system in Washington, D.C. that I was the director of operations for for five years and in Baltimore, where I was CEO. Yeah, some of the best safety ratings in the country. Um, I think we were the best in Baltimore in the country. We had a one AFR, preventable AFR, one accident for 100,000 miles in the paratransit service there. And they were, that was being run by companies like MV, First Transit, and Transdev, three of the big ones. But they followed these, these patterns. First, it's to define safety performance, number one. you got to define it. What in the world are you measuring? A lot of people are measuring things for accidents that should not be counted as accidents. So if you have a curb strike, that's an incident, but has there been a person injured? Has there been any property damage or vehicle damage? If not, under the National Safety Council definition of accidents, you should not count that as an accident. Now, the federal government has something where they they collect uh, data, NTD data, National Transit Database data, but they don't really define preventable accidents, but that's what everybody's focused on. How do we get these preventable accidents down to at least under two for paratransit for 100,000 miles? And one of the ways is I think you have to have a clear definition and make sure everybody on your team, especially your drivers <laughs> and your road supervisors and your safety managers are all operating with this is the definition. Number two is you've got to track it. You must track the safety data and you must make safety reporting mandatory. People need to be terminated their jobs if they have multiple violations of this, in my opinion, where they don't report accidents. Maybe even, you know, some people have zero tolerance on that, but you have to uh, track it. And then after you talk it, you can trend it, uh, which these are things that pretty much everybody does. They track and trend their accidents. So, but by that, I mean, um, figure out the categories, right? Where are the big categories that your accidents are happening? And are you having... Um, uh, mirror strikes. Are you having, are your vans for your paratransit service when they try to pull up to the senior center or the hospital? Are they hitting the roof of the van? We, used, we had that in DC. We even did a poster, uh, called the roofs of DC or the overhangs of DC where they were always running under this. So you got to figure out what are the trends? Where are you having the accidents? Unfortunately, you know where a lot of people have accidents? In the yard. Uh, that was our number one. <laughs> In Baltimore, oh yes. When I got finally the data, we were having accidents in our own freaking yard where the buses are pulling out and pulling in and hitting each other or hitting poles or buildings or whatever. And this is the big one. Then number four, perform a root cause analysis. Figure out what in the world is causing this. Don't focus on the one-offs. You know, in other words, focus on the trends. What are the big ones? Get your biggest bang for the buck. I was teaching this a few years ago to a class, and uh, a lady said, one of the safety road supervisors said, "Yeah, I know exactly what you mean." You know, you have to focus on the big things. Like I saw a lady driving out of the yard the other day with her purse up on the dashboard of the bus. And I was thinking that could block her view. We got to get that off there. <laughs> I said, no, what you're saying is exactly the opposite of what I'm saying. Unless you've determined that that's a major cause of accident. I mean, yeah, tell her to take it off. But that's not where we need to have a program around that. Focus on the big things. And so, um, you know, uh, 
for instance, a lot of cities across America have experienced trouble with uh, passengers assaulting their drivers, either physically or having stuff thrown at them. You know, they get into fare disputes at the fare box. People throw coffee on them, spit at them, try to punch them. I mean, it's crazy. And so um, you have to figure out what is the root cause of what's happening there, and then develop a strategy, number five. Uh, by the way, I think you should involve every layer of your organization in doing the root cause analysis and developing a strategy. So you don't want to just figure it out as the top manager sitting there around a room shooting the breeze while they're looking at these data. No, you need to get some drivers in, some mechanics, get the union represented there, get everybody involved in the analysis process and then developing the strategy. So for instance, we were in DC, we were having a lot of mirror strikes with our vans. We'd park the van outside of somebody's house. This is paratransit service. Walk up to their door to walk them back out. By the time they got out, somebody hit the mirror on the, on the driver's side because they were tight streets. So we had to develop a strategy. How do we fix that? Um, we had people, like I said, running into overhangs. People didn't realize that they only had 11 feet on their roof of their van. And if they went into something, you know, shorter than that, they'd strike it. And the same thing with driver assaults in Baltimore, where we were having that happen. So we were figuring out what's the strategy. And we, we figured out the strategy. And then this is the big one. All right, Jay, number six is the one that everybody forgets. What they normally do is they figure out what they're going to do about it. And then they make it a policy. You cannot change behavior through memos. You have to win the hearts and minds. You have to, number six, implement a campaign. So that's what we've done with all these and how we were able to defeat all these major safety issues. So the campaign means, you know, like we did something, my old boss, Leland Peterson, who's an amazing guy, did something called Safety Never Sleeps in Washington, D.C. We had everybody hitting these overhangs. And so we had all the managers come out every morning at 3 a.m. to pull out and all the mid-level managers. And we'd stand there and we, we built like uh, PVC pipes that were 12 feet tall and had a tennis ball hanging down at 11 feet so it, or a little bit lower. And it would hit the van as they go out and it would look up and the sign would say, your height is 11 feet, don't go into anything. So we did a campaign, we told people about it. We, we went out, we handed out memos, you know, your safety, your safety tip of the day on your manifest is don't, remember you're 11 feet tall, do not go over under, you know, overhangs. And, um, and so uh, we did the same thing with uh, the, we had driver shields already in place in most of our buses in Baltimore. They were Dutch doors, so the bottom would close and the top one they would leave open. So I didn't, you know, everybody wanted me to make it mandatory that we close them both. So they were like a, like a bus driver becomes like a train driver where they had plexiglass. And a lot of drivers didn't want to do that. They felt, you know, kind of cramped up back there. But I went around, went to all the garages and had multiple meetings with the drivers and explained to them, look, man, every month, like five or six of you are getting something happening to you. This is for your own safety. Do you understand why we're doing this? And let's talk about it. If you've got an ADA reason why you don't need it, we can make an exception. Maybe if you if we can get you know that worked out as a, as a reasonable exception or whatever. And so we did a campaign, uh, and we did the same thing with the mirror strikes. You know, we did a campaign about hey, fold the mirror in, make that part of your program every day when you get out of the vehicle, fold your mirror in, put a safety cone behind your van, and then go for it, go get go get the person because we were also having people strike the back of the van. So the campaign is big, and then. Then you make it policy. Then you put it in writing and give a month or two to let everybody get used to it before you start writing people up. Uh, because, you know, making changes, you have to usually also, if you're uh, represented by a union, you know, this is not legal advice, but normally you have to do something called effects bargaining with the union, et cetera, before you make new rules uh, that involve points and stuff like that. But those seven steps, uh, we've used them now in multiple locations. And I've taught this all around the country. And it is working in transit systems across America and improving the safety performance of their public transit systems. Well, Paul, I have to tell you, with everything that you actually covered, 
the title of Chief Transit Evangelist definitely does apply to you. You just have a plethora of knowledge in regards to the transit industry. And I, believe me, uh, I normally try to keep it relatively short, so I do apologize about this. But I would love to have you back on at an, on another episode if you would allow us to do that here in the near future. Love to do it. We could talk about, you know, what's happening in the in the new transit trend, some of the stuff we talked on. But we can talk about the safety access of it or something like that. And this was a great interview, Jay. You're a great interviewer. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. Now, if you want to hear more about from Paul Comfort, please go to his actual podcast at Transit Unplugged Podcast, and you can find that on Apple, Google Play, or whatever your favorite podcatcher is. Thanks again. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen. We are changing safety cultures. One broadcast and one podcast at a time. SafetyFM.com Wow, how things can change from one week to the next. Hey, hope everybody out there is staying healthy. I know everything is super crazy. We feel disoriented by the COVID-19 virus. It's more important than ever to stay connected and check in with your loved ones. That's why I'm so happy I've got T-Mobile. Listen, T-Mobile isn't just talking the talk. They're taking measures right now to make life easier for everyone by doing the right thing for their customers during this really critical time. For example, T-Mobile has ensured all current customers with data plans have access to unlimited smartphone data on their network for two months. We're all in this together. T-Mobile truly believes that. And while many T-Mobile stores are temporarily closed to help keep customers and employees healthy, they've still got you covered with any help you need. Just check out T-Mobile.com. You can see what stores are still open and how you can manage your account online. Stay safe out there. During congestion, customers using more than 50 gigs a month may notice reduced speeds prioritization. Video typically at 480p, capable device required.